The structure of this sermon this morning is going to be a little bit different because I am going to spend a significant time on a broad introduction before we come back into the meat of this text. And part of that is because this is a continuation, really, a part two, an addendum to what we talked about last week. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But that someone who is truly has faith is secure in who they are in Christ. I also want to talk a little bit more about the question of whether or not you can lose your salvation because this is such a prominent debate within Christianity. And it has significant theological and practical ramifications. So let us begin in verse 32. The author of Hebrews continues his admonition after warning them about falling into the hands of the living God. And then verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So the end of verse 39 says that we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. And then it's going to move into chapter 11, which the rest of the summer, moving into the fall, we're going to be walking through chapter 11 and looking at the hall of faith. Those who, if you will, there are various case studies of those who held on to Christ, held on to their faith, and endured and therefore proved their faith. A lot of practical admonitions as well as clear teachings about the security that we have in Christ. But the question that remains for many of us is, can you throw away your confidence? If you look at verse 35, it says, do not throw away your confidence. And so the question that many people have on their mind, on their hearts is, can I throw it away? Can I do something that will cast aside my salvation? The Salvation Army does work all over the world. And in the Salvation Army handbook on doctrine... It says this, some truly converted people have fallen from grace and salvation, and the danger of doing so threatens every Christian. It is indeed a pervasive belief in Christianity that a truly believing individual can apostatize and walk away from belief and forfeit their salvation. Wesleyanism, as well as various facets of Pentecostalism, and then many other denominations, even here within the United States, such as Methodism, the Methodists. Many, many denominations hold to the core belief and understanding that you can lose your salvation. And many Baptists as well. 
often sometimes fall on one of two sides of the spectrum. Eternal security is viewed as a once you said a prayer, you're good, and it doesn't matter how you live, as long as you made that profession. Or on the other side, that yes, maybe I can lose my salvation and are influenced by some of the wider conversations that happen within evangelicalism. But what does the Bible say about this? And how do we address these difficult passages? We did a little bit last week and we continue that conversation. Because Hebrews 6 and 10, specifically in this book, are often cited as texts of proof that shows believers can walk away and remove themselves out of the shepherd's hands. That it's impossible for those who've been enlightened, who've tasted of the heavenly gift, to be restored, to find salvation. And that those who've been sanctified can somehow outrage the spirit of grace and fall into the hands of the living God. Or hear that after living even under persecution, that you can still throw away your confidence. So how do we address these critical questions? The structure of this sermon, again, is a little bit different in that what I'm going to do is just walk through some different thought processes. And I'm going to give you five of them. The fifth one we're going to end at looking specifically in this passage. But the first thought process in understanding these critical questions of whether or not I can lose my salvation, the first thing we must do, number one, is understand the gospel rightly. Understand the gospel rightly. You see, the gospel is more than your belief that gets you entry into heaven. Even sometimes our verbiage reinforces this. Believe and God will give you eternal life. Now, those are true, but there's much more to that. Now, a simple belief can grant genuine salvation. Salvation and it is wonderfully complex, but also gloriously simple. It is the simple belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior, he who takes away our sins and gives us eternal life. And belief in that person grants us eternal life, but also so much more than eternal life. But first, understand that the gospel is just more than your belief actuating a response from God to grant you entry into heaven. Because when the gospel is reduced to a belief that gets you a commodity, that it's your belief or even the strength of your belief, it is easy to see how that commodity can be revoked. I believe God grants me the passport into heaven. I disbelieve or I struggle with my sin and that passport, as it were, is revoked at passport control. You know those guys at the airport, guys and gals, both of them, they sit there, and I think they're paid to look mean. You walk up there, and they look you up and down the passport, and you're wondering, are they going to put that stamp in my passport? Are they going to grant me entry? I've been to Israel so many times, and they are especially terrifying there. And sometimes we, we treat our salvation like that. It's, it's a passport that we hope and pray that when we get to the gates of heaven that, that Michael the archangel or St. Peter, according to Catholic tradition, is going to look us over and say, I don't know. And we wonder, is our salvation going to be revoked? Are we going to be refused entry? What is the gospel? 
The gospel is more than a ticket. It's more than a passport. It is good news. The good news of the vicarious death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead to those who believe. And when we believe, this is what happens. We are washed clean. We are reconciled with the Father. We are clothed in the righteousness of the Son. We are regenerated and literally made a new creation. We are given a new heart, a new spirit. The law of God is implanted into our very being. We are united with the Son in Christ. We become united with him in his life and in his death. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We're adopted as children of God. We're enthroned with Christ in the heavenlies, made perfect, and given uninhibited access to the Father. There's much more I could say on these things. But this gift, all of these things, as a result of belief, God's sovereignty in drawing us to himself, declares the sufficiency, the efficacy, the finality, the eternality of Christ's sacrifice. That one sacrifice does all of this by the will of omnipotent God. Now let's walk this back. And let's understand to lose salvation, what losing salvation would entail. Okay? This is a very important exercise. What would losing salvation entail? It is not simply the revoking of a passport or revoking of access to heaven. This is what the revoking of salvation would mean. It would mean being severed again from the Father whom the Son reconciled us to. It would mean being stripped of the Son's righteousness and being unmade as a new creation, being degenerated. We would have to be divided from the Son whose material united us with him in his life and death. The Holy Spirit would have to depart us and disown us after placing his seal on us. He would have to disinherit us from adoption and remove us from the family of God. We would have to be dethroned from the heavenlies, a loss of perfection, we would have to be stripped of the life that has now been given to us in the Son. And finally, we would then have to be denied access to the Father in heaven. This ability that somehow we have within ourselves or in our ability to nullify the sacrifice of Christ to remove ourselves from such permanent identities, this diminishes the glory of the sacrifice of Christ. On top of that, if we do persevere, it gives us cause to boast, whereas Ephesians 2 says that is by the grace of God through faith that you have been saved, not of works, lest any man should what? Boast. So let's be clear. If we're talking about the loss of salvation, let us be very, very clear on what is being taken away. And then I would argue that such 
total stripping of redemption status is textually and theologically untenable. You will watch doctrine after doctrine fall and fail to the point where you will come to a cesspool of despair and anxiety because the loss of salvation diminishes the cross and the diminishing of the cross diminishes Christ and ultimately puts it back on ourselves when the cross in the very beginning had nothing to do with you and me. It is solely and completely the work of Jesus Christ. All right, number one, let's understand the gospel rightly. Number two, let's be clear who does the saving and who does the keeping. Let's be clear who does the saving and who does the keeping. Please turn with me, if you would, for just a moment to Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. This is a passage, and I want you to mark and see how many times that God is taking the action. That he is taking the role of initiation. Romans chapter 8, verse 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called. He also justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. We do not glorify ourselves. We do not justify ourselves. We do not save ourselves. Quite simply, God finishes what he starts. And since it was the sovereign grace of the Father, not the free will of man, that begin the work of salvation in the lives of sinners, so also will God exercise the same sovereign power to bring about this great work of redemption all the way to completion. And believers can be confident that they will persevere by the preserving power of the Father. Please turn back to Hebrews, this time to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 24. So Hebrews 1 through 7 thus far has been decrying the sufficiency, the power, the authority, the sacrifice of Christ. Verse 24 says in chapter 7, But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, if you do not have this underlined in your Bible, highlighted, starred, and tattooed on your forearm, please do all of the above. You said the pastor asked me to get a tattoo. If it's this, hey, go for it. <laughs> Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Who is it that saves us to the uttermost? It is the preserving power of the intercession of the Son of God. Jesus does not save his people in a manner in which that salvation can be forfeited or lost. No, he saves to the uttermost, perfectly, completely, and eternally. You say, Pastor, 
I blow it sometimes. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, Jesus will bring you back. He will convict your heart. He will show you your sin. And he will lovingly draw you back. Do you remember Peter? Peter, who had seen the transfiguration, he saw the unveiled glory of Christ. He saw Christ do all of these miracles. He had access and nearness to truth like nobody had had. Peter said, I'll never deny you, Jesus. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. But then Jesus says this, Peter, Satan has desired to have you. But I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have turned again, not if, when you have turned again to be restored and strengthened, your brothers. So Peter goes out that night and three times says, I deny him, I deny him, I deny him. And then God, through the providential intercession of the Son, who is prayed to uphold Peter's faith, after denying the Son, breaks Peter's heart, and Peter weeps bitterly. And then at the seaside of the Galilee, Jesus restores and brings Peter back. The intercession of the Son is not an if, but a when. And that if we have believed, like Peter has really believed, even though we may blow it big time, name the sin. That if we belong to him, we have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ genuinely, I promise you that the intercessory work of the Son is going to bring you back. It's going to bring you back. And humble you and confess your sin. You see, if you are in Christ, you are not able to override the will of the Son who has desired to have you. J.I. Packer says this, Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. And you are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to hold you. I want to read that one more time because it made me cry. And I might cry again. Your faith will not fail while God sustains it. You are not strong enough to fall away while God is resolved to halt you. You cannot override the omnipotent will of God. If you are a child of God, Ephesians 1.13 says that you have been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit to the praise of his glory. And a seal is affixing something that, that expresses ownership, security, Authentication, 
In the Greek, this word is translated that of a pledge has the idea of, of, a, of a down payment, a first installment with a guarantee that the rest is going to follow. The Holy Spirit says, down payment made, mine, redeemed, rescued, and I'm going to see them through until they are glorified and the fullness of their salvation is consummated. As Wayne Grudem says, all who have the Holy Spirit within them, all who are truly born again, have God's unchanging promise and guarantee that the inheritance of eternal life in heaven will certainly be theirs. God's own faithfulness is pledged to bring it about. It is God's character that preserves you, not you yourself. He cannot and will not let you go. He will persevere you if you are his child. So number one, understand the gospel rightly. Number two, let's understand who does the, keep, give the saving and who does the keeping. Number three, let's also be clear that eternal security is not permission for nominalism. The concept that we are eternally secure in Christ is not permission for nominalism. Oftentimes, people reject or react against eternal security or the perseverance of the saints because it is sometimes used as a cloak. I made a prayer back then. I'm good. It doesn't matter if I'm saved or if it doesn't matter, sorry, whether there's fruit in my life. Let's be very clear. First John and James in the New Testament says that fruit indicates genuine faith. The book of Hebrews puts out the theme again and again that endurance also marks true believing faith. Now you say some people though seem so genuine. I know people who they, they, were, they look like believers and, and they walked away. What do I do with that, Pastor Nathan? Well, number four, religious fervency does not prove genuine faith. Religious fervency does not prove genuine faith. It is possible to have extreme amounts of religious fervency. I have met the Hindus who have spent their life cross-legged sitting on the side of a street in Varanasi and will die there all in religious fervency to prove themselves to the Hindu pantheon. Or Muslims who will sacrifice extraordinarily in religious piety. Or a good Baptist who tithes and gives and does all of the external things, but remains unregenerated because they've never trusted in Christ personally. They're rather just going through the religious motions, and some people just like religion. But true faith produces fruit and fragrance that images Christ. The object of their faith is not self-focused, but Christ-focused. You say, but I, I've heard people who, who departed the faith, who gave some amazing sermons. And I want to be very clear that an unbeliever can wax eloquent on matters of virtue, vices, ethics, and even religious self-denial. Look at Confucius. Read Confucius. Read Mahatma Gandhi. Look at the eloquence of their virtues. Many of you, do you remember Joshua Harris who wrote that book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye? 
and now has fully departed the faith. The ability to wax eloquent on virtuous ethics is not in and of itself a sign of true redemption. The scribes and the Pharisees could have waxed just as eloquent, and yet Jesus called them vipers. So religious fervency does not prove genuine faith. Well, what does? Faith in Jesus Christ, resting in his sacrifice alone. And then that fragrance of Christ permeates our life. So lastly, in order to answer these critical questions, let's understand Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10 in their context. Now we come back to our passage of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 to 39. And I want to remind you that these are challenging texts and not without their complexities and interpretive challenges. But you have to make a decision. You have to make a decision on what view has the fewest problems. I'm not saying that the view I hold is not without textual difficulty at times. It's not that God's word is clumsy, but sometimes my interpretation is clumsy. But I would put forward that the view that I talked about last week and this morning has the fewest amount of textual problems. Because if you adopt any of the other ones, particularly the belief that these are true believers who've lost their salvation, the domino effect of doctrine that then ensues is massive. So if we look at verse 26, chapter 10, verse 26, let's look there for just a moment. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice of sins. Then we go down to verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? And then lastly, verse 31, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then he moves into verse 32, saying, remember what you went through. How do we understand this? Because it seems like he's talking directly at believers. So we have to ask the question one more time. Who is he talking to? Who is he talking to? Before we answer that question, the author of Hebrews continuously perceives only of two categories. Those who are destroyed and those who are preserved. Look at verse 39. There are those who shrink back and are destroyed. And there are those who have faith and are preserved. In Hebrews chapter 6, there are only two categories that are talked about. The land that receives the rain and produces blessing. And then the, the land that receives the rain produces thorns and is destroyed. There is no third category that was truly a blessing and then destroyed. Within this group of those who are destroyed, there are those who reject natural revelation. Romans 1. That this is the people who've never heard of Christ. But they reject what they see in creation. They would rather serve the creature rather than the creator. There is no questioning of there must be a God out there. If there is a questioning, then God in his sovereignty is already drawing that heart and will provide a witness. But there are those who reject general revelation, never heard of Christ, and yet are still condemned because creation itself testifies to the existence of God. There are also those who are destroyed that reject specific revelation. This the Bible, the knowledge of Christ. Both are destroyed because they've rejected the revelation of God. 
But Hebrews is talking to those specifically who reject after they have heard. They know, they've seen, they've heard, and they still reject it. So who is he talking to? Who is this admonition? Who is this audience that we're talking about? The writer of Hebrews is addressing the Christian community in which there are both true believers and then just religious people. And this is not inconsistent with Scripture. The people of Israel were called the people and the chosen people of God, and yet within the people of Israel, the majority of them were actually not saved. Only a few follow, but they were generically called the people of God. And understanding the Old Testament roots of Hebrews, this book, it is likely and surmisable that this theme should be carried forward. Likewise, even in the Christian church in uh, the New Testament, you have the Christian community, but within the Christian community, you still have Judas or Ananias and Sapphira or Alexander and Hymenaeus that Paul said have made a shipwreck of their faith. And there are Jews here within the book of Hebrews that have heard of Christ and the warnings of damnation, and yet they still are rejecting him. Now, what brought it out? What exposed the cracks in the facade of their religiosity? Look at verse 32. You endured hard struggle with sufferings, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, partners with those who've been treated and mistreated, and you've had your property plundered. So you, as a Christian community, you understand the cost of following Christ. That it's a hard struggle. That we are called to even be partners with those who are in affliction. We may not be even persecuted here, but we're partners with those in China who are, or in Iran who are, or in Morocco or Libya who are. We have compassion on those in prison and we joyfully accept the plundering of our property for the sake of Christ. You know what the cost of following Christ is. And this cost and rejection from the world is now starting to point out some who are saying, I'm not sure I want this. Indeed, right now, just the cost of being called a bigot or insensitive or intolerant in our culture is enough for people to say, I don't think I want any more of this. I know who Christ is, but I don't want the cost of following him. And so the writer zeroes down and says, don't throw away your confidence. It's the only one that will save you. And if you walk away, you are entering into the hands of the living God. Don't you know that you have a better possession and an abiding one? It's better than anything here. It's recalling that beatitude statement. Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. If I'm the writer of Hebrews, I'm addressing the Christian church and I'm saying some of you are true believers. Remember the cost of following Christ and hold on. Continue to persevere and endure. But some of you are playing the game 
Some of you are just religious devotees. Maybe you like the chairs in our sanctuary. Maybe you like the tagline Baptist. Maybe you like hearing the way I preach. I don't know. But if you don't take this truth into your heart and move beyond religiosity and make Jesus Christ your Lord in belief as your Savior, then you stand to fall into the hands of a living God. And if you fall away, what that shows, if you die in unbelief, if you die in rejection of Christ, you prove that you were never one of us in the first place. I'm drawing in a lot of other texts so you see that this is a total biblical worldview. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not all of us. That the endurance or lack thereof proves who we really are. But verse 39, after giving all these severe warnings, the writer then looks at those in his congregation and says, but we are not those who shrink back. I know you and you and you. You're a person of faith. God has made you righteous. And because you are righteous, you are living by faith. And you have cause for confidence, not fear. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have been made righteous by the Son of God and have faith and our souls will be preserved. We preserve our souls as the Holy Spirit works out in our life. So don't give up when the road gets hard. Don't fall away. Keep going. And let's take lessons from those who have gone before. Let us learn from those who have walked this road before us, flawed and feeble, but full of faith. And despite their flaws and their feebleness, because they held on, and because they believed in Christ preserved them, the world was not worthy of them, Hebrews 11 says. So next week, we begin this journey at learning on those who did have faith, who endured, whom God kept through many danger, toil, and snare. It was grace that brought us safe thus far, and it is grace that will lead me home. God's grace and his persevering work and intercession is going to take us all the way if you are in Christ. If you're not, today's the day of salvation. Talk to me. Talk to someone here. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we have talked about weighty matters of eternity and salvation, we pray that you would be honored and glorified. May your word go forward powerfully. And anchor us. It is not the strength of our conviction, the strength of the right words that were prayed, 
but rather the feeble act of faith that says, I am a sinner. Jesus, you are a great Savior. And like the thief on the cross, before we can do any work that shows anything, we just say, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And on that act, simple childlike act of faith, you secure us, hold on to us, and preserve us to the end. May we also be faithful. May we also, through the challenges of life, uphold what we believe and stand on Christ. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.